Luke chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 11. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gesenaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put it out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled for their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. That they had taken, And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. The word of God for pe- the people of God. As we prepare for this morning's sermon, I invite you to pray with and for me. Let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're in the second week of our sermon series that we're calling One With. It's predicated on the prayer that we pray every time we gather at the communion table. We pray to God, by your spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. That's a pretty revolutionary prayer, a pretty powerful prayer, and we pray it every time we gather. We also this morning received these two scripture passages, the story of the calling of the two greatest apostles in scripture, the calling of Paul as he remembers his own status as an apostle of Jesus, as a disciple, and the calling of Peter, the first disciple, sort of the head disciple. And I got to say, I struggle a little bit with these two stories. I just don't find them all that much helpful in terms of how I see my own life and calling. I wish I had the kind of calling that Paul had where he was on the road to Damascus and all of a sudden a bright light shone all around him and he was struck blind until a member of the community cared him back to health, loved him back to community. Or Peter, the fisherman, who was having a bad day on the boat And Jesus shows up and like all of a sudden he's got a huge haul. I wish that my calling were like that. I sometimes describe my own calling to ministry as a negative calling. What I mean is it seemed like God was plucking possibilities out of the air until only one thing was left. The thing is though, it's not just clergy that are called. 
Not just pastors. Everybody's called. You are called to something. The writer Frederick Buechner says that the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. There's an intersection of who you are and what the world needs, and that is the place God calls you to. And while at first glance these Scripture passages don't seem all that helpful to those of us who have not been hit in the face with our calling, if you zoom out a little bit, the context helps. Peter, for instance, the first disciple, was a successful fisherman. He was successful enough that he owned his own boat. That's not a small deal. But he's having a bad day. A bad day on the lake is like the only day fishing I ever had. But Peter like lived off of this stuff. So he goes and he fishes and he gets nothing. And then all of a sudden, a carpenter he's never met before says, Hey, I got an idea. Like, I don't know if a man can mansplain to another man, but that's exactly what happened. And then Peter drops his net in the water. He does it. And all of a sudden, he's got a haul. And that's nice. But you must imagine what Peter must feel at that moment. Like, here I am, supposed to know what I'm talking about. And then it takes Jesus showing up for me to be able to do my job. What's more, Peter went on to be one of 12 very diverse disciples who, if you look at their background and stations in life, agreed on nothing except for their devotion to Jesus. Or you look at the calling of Paul. Paul, before being the greatest Christian theologian in the history of the church, who wrote much of the New Testament, Paul persecuted Christians. He was literally someone who murdered other people. This is the person that God calls. And when Peter had his dramatic Damascus Road experience, it's not like things, when Paul had his dramatic Damascus Road experience, it's not like things immediately got better for him. In fact, he spent his whole ministry trying to legitimate himself. This passage in 1 Corinthians that Denise read this morning is part of an argument that Paul is making saying, I am good enough to be in the room. There were many disagreements among the disciples in the early church as people discerned what it meant to be a Christian in the days after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. The original disciples, the one who were left, looked at Paul and said, you didn't have to walk the road that we walked. You had this one experience and you think you're equal to us. And what Paul says is that, yes, I had a different experience of Jesus than you who were with Him, who walked that road with Him. But we are all connected through the resurrection of Jesus. It binds all of us together because Christ came and died our death, but then it was defeated. He became human. And in that moment, that central moment, and all of human history, the other divisions ceased to matter. For we are all connected through that resurrection. I did a couple of tours of duty on the District Committee on Ordained Ministry. That's one of the, I think, 350,000 hoops one jumps through to become clergy in the United Methodist Church. 
And one of the things we do is we listen to people's call stories. We say, tell us how it is that you feel like you were called to ministry. We also evaluate their theology, which matters. We evaluate their understanding of doctrine. And I would ask the same question every time, which is, tell me about the resurrection. Do you believe in it? And like, if you ever go through that process, the correct answer to that question is yes. <laughs> but then I say, what, is, what are the implications of the resurrection? And usually there's an answer of, well, we go to heaven when we die, which is true. Christ defeated our death. We'll see one another in heaven. We'll all be there together. And you may be happy about that or not. I don't know, but we're all going to be there. But then... I ask, what about beyond that? And the right answer there is that the resurrection of Jesus isn't just about the fact that we'll go to heaven when we die. We will, and it's wonderful. But the resurrection means that your eternal life has already begun. It begins not when you die, but when you decide to follow Jesus. There are implications for how the world understands the gospel that depend on you. And what's more, we may be very different people, with very different understandings of who God is and how the church is to work and what the world is. But in the resurrection of Jesus, we are all connected to one another. All of us. You see, throughout Scripture and throughout history, it is the case that God's primary instrument is people. God's primary instrument is people. That doesn't mean that God is in heaven with the marionette strings. That's not how it works. What it means, though, is that the way that God uh, uh, lives out God's hopes for the world is through people. Scripture is not a story of robots or of animals. It's not one big fairy tale. It is a story of people. And so if we are to be people who see God at work, who want to grow in our faith, it is vital that we are in relationship with all kinds of people, not just people who look just like us, but different kinds of people. We have to be open to seeing God in people we never thought we'd see God in before. I was in college when I got that call to ministry. And I explored it the best I could. I didn't grow up going to church, so I didn't have a conception of what a pastor was supposed to be like. I'm not sure I have an understanding of what a pastor is supposed to be like now. And so I kind of tested, right? I did Bible study, and I found that to be meaningful. And I got involved in worship at Birmingham Southern, and I found that to be meaningful. And I joined a church, and I found that to be meaningful. And I took on a practice the chaplain suggested we try in Lent, which is to fast one day a week. I would, I, would, I would eat an early dinner on Wednesday, and I wouldn't eat again until sundown on Thursday. I'd only have water and maybe juice. Now, if you've not practiced fasting, it's a deeply meaningful practice. I'd encourage you to do it. I would not encourage you, though, to do what I did, which is to walk around letting everybody know just how miserable I was, just how holy I was. In fact, I got invited to dinner with some friends, some fraternity brothers, and I said, oh, I can't. I'm too holy. No, I, I, I'm fasting, right? I can't do it. I can't do it. And my friend Sam took me aside. Sam grew up Roman Catholic, very devout in his own way. And he took me aside and he said, I have a friend who fasts regularly. 
And when somebody asks him to come to dinner, he says, no thank you, I'm full. No thank you, I'm full. I've thought about that a lot in the last 20 years or so. No thank you, I'm full. Because that's the whole point of going without, right? Being full. Now Sam was correcting me. I was 18 and hot-headed, and Sam corrected me. If I had not been open to listening to him, I would have missed out on one of the more profound spiritual truths I have experienced in my life. You see, holiness, the business of being one with God and one with each other, is about being vulnerable so that we can say, I didn't see it that way, but you have taught me something. It's about being open to other people. The writer Malcolm Gladwell writes about how fast we can make decisions, how snap decisions sometimes matter. And he tells the story of a marriage counselor who says, I can tell almost immediately if a marriage is going to make it. He says, if they look at each other in the eyes we have a shot. But if they roll their eyes at each other, no. It gets me thinking how I live out my faith with other people. When someone disagrees with me or presents a different perspective, do I look them in the eye or do I roll my eyes? It's central to being one with God and one another. It requires us to see people as they are, not as we hoped that they would be, not as we assume that they are. The challenge is we walk around with a set of assumptions about all kinds of people. The writer Anne Lamott talks about how it's supposed to be that we are made in God's image. That's what it says in Scripture. But you can tell that you've made God in your own image instead of the other way around when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. We walk around with all sorts of assumptions. In my house, we experienced a special uh, example of the problem with assumptions this last week. I want to tell this story carefully because my six-year-old's in the room and she live fact-checked me at 8.45 on on this story. So it starts with something sad, which is to say in the last few months, we had uh, two dogs and they both passed away and we were sad about that. And we said, we, we want to wait a little while before getting new dogs. So we're going to do fish. We're going to do goldfish. We said, this would be easy. We'll just get some goldfish. It'll be great. Well, Emily and our six-year-old last Sunday decided that was the day we were going to get them. And so after church, my wife, Stacy, who is a pastor, took her to get some goldfish and they went to the store And the guy at the pet store said, here's the thing, goldfish foul up their tanks pretty quickly. What you really want are guppies or mollies. And the thing is, the males are really beautiful. And so we got four guppies and two mollies. And we went home and we set the tank up and it was great. So we all went to bed. The tank is in Emmeline's room. She woke up the next morning. My wife walked in to get her dressed and turned out the fish had fouled up the tank. And she couldn't figure out what was going on. So she looked closer. And she realized that the fouled up tank had lots of little things swimming in it that weren't in it the night before. We had not gotten six male guppies and 
And so I now am the proud owner of 10 surviving fish. And for a low, low price, no, no, I would, I'm just kidding. We do this with others. We assume things about their motivations. We do this about and with God. We assume God's motivations or that our reading of Scripture is right. And if my life is any example, again and again and again, I learn that I have not taken a wide enough view of what it means to be one with God and one with one another. Both are vital. At the end of this month, there is a called General Conference of the United Methodist Church. I've spoken about this the last few weeks. I will be a delegate. Ostensibly, the nature of that gathering is to figure out what it means to be one with God and one another. Because for almost 50 years, which is incidentally the length of time the United Methodist Church has been the United Methodist Church, we have been arguing about human sexuality and our understanding of same-sex, loving, lifelong, monogamous relationships. But the truth of the matter is, we pretend we're talking about issues, we're really talking about people. Now, I don't want to make this a sermon about LGBTQ relationships. If you'd like to talk about that or the way that I understand those relationships within a biblical context, call me, email me, let's set up time. I'd love to have conversation. But I do want to let you know where I, where I come down on all of this and how I'll be voting. There are a number of plans that have been offered some of which maintain the church's stance that does not allow for same-sex weddings on church property, which does not allow for the ordination of LGBTQ clergy. I will be voting for what is known as the One Church Plan. That is a plan that allows for context. It allows for us to affirm here the unique gifts and graces of LGBTQ folks who are here already within this congregation and a significant part of it. I'll be voting for this plan because I believe it is the most faithful way for the church to move in a direction that honors all people and allows us to be who God has called us to be. Now, I have not always believed this way. In fact, I have changed my mind about LGBTQ people. I wasn't raised in a community that, had, uh, that was very diverse. To the extent we knew gay and lesbian people, it was not, uh, it was just very shallow relationships. The thing that got me to change my mind beyond my own study of Scripture and prayer was being in relationship with actual, living, breathing people. It was being in relationship with people, not just working with them, or not just shaking hands. It was learning their stories, hearing their joys and their pain, seeing one another as people. It changes you, that kind of relationship. And so it is that I changed my mind about how I think God thinks about all of this and how God would have us react. There are those who would tell you that that changing of my mind based on relationship is a demonstration of weakness. It is a demonstration of how culture is privileged above Scripture. 
I see it differently. If it is true that God's primary instrument is people, as demonstrated to us by the fact that Jesus became one of us, then it is likewise the case that God works through these relationships. And if we are open and vulnerable enough, if we are willing to be proved wrong occasionally, God will show up and teach us things that we never knew. I want to end this way. One of the things some people sometimes point to in the story of Paul is they say, oh, he was a murderer, but he changed. And so it's the case that other people who, whose lifestyles I don't agree with, whose relationships I don't agree with, whose personhood I don't agree with, they ought to change because Paul changed. You know, he was a sinner and then he quit sinning. I would, I would propose to you that the story of Paul changing his ways is not for other people. It's for you. It's for me. It's easy to say somebody else should change. It's harder to say that I need to change. The writer Howard Thurman says this about the nature of community. He says, Community cannot for long feed on itself. It can only flourish with the coming of others from beyond their unknown and undiscovered brothers and sisters. And so it is the case that you cannot be one with God without being one with one another. You cannot be one with one another without being one with God. This is the message of Jesus. It's the nature of the gospel. Dear God, let it be. Amen.